But you take your Bible and turn to John 15. John 15, a little bit of time we have left. I want to consider verses 1 through 11 of John 15. The words before us this morning are God's words, given by God through his messenger, the Apostle John. John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, recording for us in this fourth gospel record, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. John was given this unique privilege, kind of a behind-the-scenes tour of the life of Jesus. And being one of the, the inner three, he was moved by the Spirit to record his, his experience and, and the truth about Christ in this book. But he's not just giving us facts. It's not just a data dump about Jesus. He tells us in chapter 20 why he's writing this book. He has written all of these things, make, making known these things to us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. And to convince us, the Apostle John has, has given us a, a wonderful record of the life of Jesus, but he's, he's created an account that rests on the spine of seven signs and seven I am statements that run through the book of John. The spine that consists of these seven signs point us to the, the entire uh, divine nature of this very human man. Jesus the Lord, making clear that he is, is not just a prophet. He is not just one sent like John the Baptist with a message from God. He is God in the flesh. And to further that, as he performs these signs, he explains them with these I am statements. These I am statements making known that, that he is God in the flesh. So some of those signs you remember are the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind man, the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. Of all the signs that Jesus did, which John says in chapter 21, if we wrote them all down, the whole earth could not contain the record of them. He chooses seven. And of those seven, he's making clear, communicating to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God believe in him and have eternal life. But he says more, he records for us the words of Jesus, these I am statements. I've told you this already, but I remind you, because that is the ministry of preaching largely, is to remind you. This is what Jesus did when he said these I am statements. He equated himself with God, pointing first back to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 41 and 43, where God, Jehovah God, says, I am with you, I am near you. And then pointing beyond that back to Exodus 3, where God appeared to Moses and said, I am who I am. Jesus in the Gospel of John is equating himself with the God who sent him, his Father who sent him. He is God in the flesh. So he says in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, again in chapter 9, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. There's only one way in. A few verses later, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, verses one, verse 1 and verse 5, we come to the last of those seven I am statements. We come to the end of the spine, as it were. We see the last part of the backbone of the gospel 
of John, the argument made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you can have eternal life. In each of these statements, these I am statements, Jesus is presenting another facet of of his character. He's telling us more about who he is. But more than that, he's telling us about his relationship to us and us to him. So he's telling us about him, but he's also telling us about how we relate to him. So he's the shepherd, we are the sheep. He provides for us, he protects us, he guides us, he delivers us safely home. He is the resurrection and the life. Therefore, physical death is not the end. If we are in Christ, we, though we die, yet we shall live and have eternal life. On John 15, Jesus says one last time, I am. And he fills that statement with glorious truth. John 15 verse 1 says this, I am the true vine, Jesus speaking. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 13 through 17, we're given a glimpse into a most sacred scene. Jesus is in his final hours. It's Thursday night of his Passion Week. He's hours away from giving his life on the cross of Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins His 12 apostles are gathered with him in his friend's upper room. It's a borrowed room. They're celebrating together one last time, the Passover meal. Jesus has told them, my hour has come, meaning the hour of his suffering and death. They are still somewhat in a fog of what all this means. He's tried to be clear with them. It's the hour of his glorification, the hour of his suffering. He's loved the disciples to the end. He's he's taken them with him all the way. And now he's ready to finish that which he came to do. As he seeks to prepare them for his departure, because he's told them, I'm about to depart and leave you. And as he prepares them for that reality, he comforts them. He assures them. He instructs them. He wants them to know how life's going to be without him. How it is that they're going to be faithful when he's not there. He tells them the truth about where he's going and why he's going there and what he's going to do. He tells them the truth about the spirit that he is going to send to them and in them. And he tells them the truth about the peace that he's leaving with them. We come to chapter 15, the drama is intensifying. You can feel, if you get yourself into the narrative, you can feel 
palpably the, the tension of Judas soon returning. He's been sent out of the room by Jesus to go betray our Lord, and he is due back any time with this band of soldiers to arrest Jesus and put him on trial for blasphemy and condemn him to a Roman death by crucifixion. The disciples are confused and unsettled. They're not sure what's going on. And Jesus says, get up, it's time to go. And they're like, wait a second, I thought we were staying here. It's late at night, 10, 11, midnight, somewhere in there. He's telling them to get up and go. And and somewhere in there, he keeps talking. Whether they're walking out of the room or he teaches them before they leave, it's unclear. But he said to them, get up, it's time to go. The, The tension is building, Judas is returning And he says to them, I'm about to depart. My hour's at hand. I'm not going to talk to you much any longer. The ruler of this world is coming. And into that cloud of uncertainty and confusion and restlessness, he says to them, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. He gives them in that statement two assurances, which will lead to one command in verses 3 through 4, which will lead to the benefits of abiding in Christ in verses 6 through 11. What we see in our text this morning, and I'm going to split it into two parts, aren't you glad? What we see in our text this morning is the the ground of the building, the the foundation of the building. We'll see next week the the stuff that you'll see in life, the, the benefits of abiding in Christ. But this is the foundational layer If you don't have this, you don't get the benefits of verses 7 through 11. The verses 1 through 6 are the foundation, the bedrock realities underlying the rest of what Jesus will say. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Consider that first assurance, he says, I am the true vine. Speaking in metaphor here, a word picture obviously, pointing them to something in the natural world to illustrate truth in the spiritual world. He does it all the time. He's a master teacher. Good teachers always do this. They're always thinking in in metaphors and analogies to get you outside of the the current moment to, to think beyond that, to see a truth illustrated well. God has specifically designed the physical world to put on constant display spiritual truths. The Puritans understood this better than probably any, any group of Christians in church history. They saw in almost every aspect of God's creation another display of some spiritual truth laid there for us to see and understand. So in chapter 10, just to give you one example, he, he talks about the sheepfold and the door into the sheepfold and says, I am that door. And then he, he talks about the shepherd and that he is the great shepherd and He's identifying with them something that's common to them. Every Jewish family had a sheep or two or a flock of them. All of them had shepherded at some point their flock. Well, just like that, here in chapter 15, he gives them another everyday example, something they're very familiar with, of a grapevine and of tending to that vine. And he says to them, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Before we get into what that means, notice that he says he is the true vine. He's referring back to Old Testament texts like Psalm 80, you can read that later, or Isaiah 5 or Jeremiah 2, where Scripture refers to Israel as God's vine, describes it as being plucked up by God out of Egypt and brought into the promised land, into a 
a bountiful and fruitful garden and planted in the beautiful vineyard of God's design of the nation, the land of Israel, the promised land. But the vine did not grow according to plan, did it? It did not produce fruit. And part of the problem, as Jesus addresses in Matthew 23, is the people who were tending the vineyard. The tenants that the vineyard had been lent out to while the master was away. Excuse me, Matthew 21. And while the master was away, remember he gives that parable of this vineyard and this master, and he leases it and expects to get fruit from it, and he sends his servants back, and the, the servants who are tending the vineyard see the master's servants coming, and they, they beat one, and they kill one, and they stone another. And then the master says, fine, I'll send more. He sends more servants, and the text says, Jesus says, they did that to the, those set of servants too. And so finally, the master says, I will send my son. Certainly, they'll respect the heir. The wicked tenants see the heir coming and say, look, it's the heir. We kill him. We can have his inheritance. Obviously, in that text, Jesus is speaking of the the rejection of the religious leaders, the national leaders of Israel, who had been entrusted with the care of the vineyard of the vine of Israel. And they had rejected the Messiah, the son sent from the father. And Jesus makes clear, you will be judged for that, but even in your judgment, the stone that the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. And God will do a mighty work even through your rejection and establish a covenant people populating his kingdom for all eternity to the praise of his glorious grace. What Jesus is saying in John 15 is that I am the true vine where every other aspect of Jewish life, of Jewish leadership, of being the vine of God has failed. I am perfect. Where that was foreshadowing, I am the fulfillment. Where that pointed you in part to what was coming, I am the completion. He is the true vine. Just like he was the true light of the world in John 1. Just like he's the true bread from heaven in John 6. Just like he's the true food and the true drink that if you partake of, you abide in him in John 6. So to have spiritual life and produce fruit, Jesus says, you must be connected to the true vine. It's really a simple analogy, isn't it? You understand it inherently. Branches don't produce fruit if they're not connected to the the vine. They can only grow grapes if they're well-connected to the life-giving source and sap of the vine. The vine is indeed the source of everything needed to produce those grapes. The branches are just the conduits. They're, They're just the ones upon which the grapes grow to deliver the harvest. If the branch is disconnected from the vine, it is never able to produce those grapes. So Christ is plainly saying in Verse 1, and then again in verse 5, I am the true vine, spiritually speaking, everything you need to live and to produce fruit, you'll find in connection to me. The next part of his assurance is that his father is the vine dresser. I'm the true vine, my father is the true vine dresser. These are the two truths governing the whole text. Jesus can't speak long of our relationship to him without turning our attention to his relationship to the Father. So this metaphor is intending to help you know how do you relate to God. He helps you know how you relate to God by helping you see how he relates to his Father. 
He explains to you their different roles in bringing you to Christ and managing your spiritual life in Christ. The Father and the Son, and we'll learn in chapter 16, the Spirit are all at work together to accomplish your sanctification. First your salvation, and then your sanctification. And while Christ supplies this unending life-giving power and life to the branches, the Father is the one who is the vine dresser, the, the one who works the vine, who oversees it and cultivates it. The glorious Glorious assurance. The pruning shears that need to come upon your spiritual life are in the hands of the eternally wise, omnibenevolent and omnipotent God, who by the giving of His own Son and the shedding of His own Son's blood has adopted you into His family and made you His own. If anyone can be trusted to know what needs cut in your life, to produce more fruit. It is the Father. Notice how the vine dresser's work is described in verse 2. It's both positive and negative. He tends to the vine with his pruning shears to accomplish two things. First, he clears the vine of the branches which are not bearing fruit. Second, he trims those branches which are bearing fruit so that they would bear even more fruit. So that the, the cultivating of this vine is for the purpose of bringing about a good crop. It's a purging and a pruning work so that there is a good harvest. And that really is the point of having a vine, right? A grapevine, the, the point is to get grapes, not to look pretty in, you know, on your vineyard wall. No, it is to produce grapes. It's to gain a harvest. And so this requires ridding the vine of branches that are sucking life but not bearing fruit and pruning the fruit-bearing branches so that they can, in time, produce even more fruit. Let's deal with the negative side of that first. There's branches connected to the vine in Jesus' metaphor here which do not bear fruit and are therefore taken away and thrown into the fire. We find out in verse 6 that this is the same person who does not abide in Christ and therefore is thrown away and withers and is thrown into the fire. We find out in verse 8 from the positive angle that bearing fruit is a sure sign of being a true disciple. So how are you known as a disciple of Jesus? Well, in verse 8, you are known by the fruit produced out of you by the life of Christ in you. So what is Christ talking about here when he says there's branches attached, not producing fruit that will be scourged from the vine by the vine dresser, thrown aside, wither and wilt, and eventually be burned? What do these non-fruit-bearing branches point to? As you can imagine, there's lots of strange interpretations, as with any text. But you can pick up a commentary that will probably tell you that you know, they'll, they'll press the analogy too far and say these people were in Christ. They'll use the language of Paul's Pauline epistles, and they'll bring that back to John's gospel. And they'll say, well, if they're in the vine, in Christ, then they were saved, they were redeemed, they were regenerated, but they weren't producing fruit, so God takes them off, they lose their salvation, and they're eternally condemned to the fires of condemnation. Well, we know that's not true. It, it directly contradicts what we learned in John 10, where Jesus said, none of those who are mine will the Father lose. They can't be plucked from his hand, nor can they be plucked from my hand. And it's pressing the analogy, obviously, too far. 
What Jesus is simply pointing to is those who are connected to him externally by profession or by practice saying they are followers of Christ, but who in their lives are producing no clear evidence of life in them, Christ in them, the hope of glory. The most obvious example, and I think there's a reason Jesus said this here. The most obvious example of that reality is who? Judas Iscariot, whom they're waiting for his soon return. He had been sucking life, as it were, from Jesus, claiming to be his disciple, doing all his stuff, looking the part, acting the part, playing the part, but there was no evidence, no bearing of fruit, true fruit. The tree was rotten, therefore the fruit itself was rotten as well. He was of Satan, not of Christ. The vine dresser then cleaned him off and cast him away, and the end of Judas will be the end of all false disciples, a judgment of the fires of God's righteous wrath. Exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount when he He said, there will be many on that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and do that and perform this and perform that all in your name? And what will he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. They will be cast into the eternal fires of judgment. This is the necessary work of the vine dresser who knows to keep the vine clean and productive is paired with the positive work then of pruning the branches which are producing fruit. And there's a definite science of pruning. I prefer golf over growing vineyards, so I have known nothing about this. Nothing at all. I watched a few YouTube videos. Like I, certainly I could learn something about this. Not that I'll ever grow it, because I, I have a black thumb, not a green one. But apparently there's a science to this. There, there's a method to the madness. There's an art to it. You need to cut in the right places. You need to know which branches need to be trimmed and when they need to be trimmed. And and you do this because apparently the the plant will be better in the long run if you trim it in the short term. That's counterintuitive to me. Let it grow. It knows what to do. Leave it alone. No, apparently to prune it just right will produce more fruit. And Jesus says to us here, But this is an illustration of our spiritual lives. We must first be connected to Christ, knowing that all that we need comes from Him. We must abide in Him, have life from Him, and produce fruit as He lives in us. Second, we must know that the Father will be pruning us to make us ever more fruitful. So can we say this morning that it is a spiritual law that true disciples are pruned that they will produce more and more fruit. Therefore, the longer you are a disciple, I'm going to stretch out the spiritual law a little bit. The longer you are a disciple, then the more spiritual fruit you will bear as you abide in him and are pruned by him. Does Does that jive with you? Does that make sense to you? So two questions then should come immediately to mind. The first is, what is the nature of this pruning work? I think you have ideas, but we need to define it biblically. The second is, what is the fruit that the true disciples bear? Because there's confusion about that, right? Let's answer the second one first, because I think it helps us answer the first one last. Are you confused? Answer the second one. What is this fruit? Our knee-jerk answer is, 
It's some outward display of spiritual success. We're so geared in our Western mindset to think of fruitfulness as success, as having accomplished something that others can visibly and obviously see and say, oh, wow, that is the fruit of their spiritual life. We think of it as outward displays of religious work, like the false disciples will in Matthew 7 when they'll say, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we perform? Didn't we accomplish all these things in your name? So we look around and we see successful ministries or popular preachers or much-wanted authors or missionaries who've given their all and are accomplishing great things in dark places. And we set them as the standard then of our fruitfulness and set ourselves up essentially for a, a negative assessment. I'll never be that. I'll never do that. I, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian then. Because I, I, I never have written a best-selling Christian book that amazes everybody and helps them in their journey before the Lord. But doing that really is like seeing a bowl of fruit on a dining room table and picking up an apple because it looks so amazingly ripe and delicious, biting into it and finding that it's a plastic decoration. That's what that's like. When the Scripture defines spiritual fruit that should be present and will be present in the life of every true disciple, Scripture talks about spiritual qualities coming out in all of life. So you think immediately of Galatians 5, don't you? Don't walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, the fruit of the Spirit will come out of you, and it will look like this. Writing a best-selling book, preaching an amazing sermon by which hundreds of people come to know the Lord. No, the Spirit's work in you produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Have you lived a day yet where you didn't need one of those to come out of you, all of them to come out of you? Have you ever had a relationship that did not need the, the oil of the Spirit's fruit to grease the wheels and allow you to get along well and display love to one another? Hebrews 13 speaks of the sacrifices of our praise as the, the fruit of our lips which gives thanks to God. The so fruit is giving praise to God. Philippians 1 verse 11 talks about a life which produces the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ, a life that is sanctified and made holy by Christ and it is evidenced through righteous living. Colossians 1, 5 through 10, Paul describes the gospel bearing fruit in all of the world, meaning people from all over are hearing the good news of, of the grace of Christ and they're seeing the power of the gospel transform and regenerate them. And that's the, that's the fruit of the gospel. Then he goes on to say, I pray for you, church in Colossae, that you would walk in a manner worthy of that gospel and that you would produce the fruit of that gospel at work in you, which is the life worthy of that calling and every good work, increasing in your knowledge of God. In other words, fruit, spiritually speaking, is found in every true disciple's life, this deep working of the Spirit of God upon the heart of the disciple to transform them essentially into Christ-likeness. Can we sum it up that way? Christ-likeness. Everything I described is, is the life of Christ lived and fleshed out of you as the branch connected to the vine. So the next question is, how is that done? 
How does that happen? If that's the fruit, how does that fruit get produced in us? How does the Lord prune us is the better question. So that we produce more fruit. Well, the answer is really found in verse 3 when Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word clean has the same root word as the word for prune in verse 2. He says to his 11 disciples in the upper room, you already have been pruned. You you already have been cleansed. How? By the word I have spoken to you, Christ says. He tells tells them again beyond that, the, the word of Christ spoken to them is the pruning scissors in the hand of the Father, bringing about this life in the believer more and more. This is exactly how Jesus prays in John 17, isn't it? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So prune them by your word, Jesus prays. This is what's promised in Ephesians 5 when Paul says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes into how Christ loved the church. He loves the church by giving himself up for her and sanctifying her by the washing of the water with the Word. So as the husband of his bride, the church, he purifies his bride with his word. Isn't that the description given to the word in Hebrews 4? A chapter that's calling us to persevere in our faith and seek to enter into the rest. Don't give up before you arrive. Calling us to persevere in faith points us at the end of the chapter to the word of God and the nature of the word. In other words, the the tool for your perseverance is going to be found here in the Word. To persevere, you must know the Word. Well, what's the nature of the Word? Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is some pruning shear. Knows how to fillet you down to the finest point of your most intimate connection. Spiritually speaking, knows how to open you up perfectly so as to do surgery that is needed to close you back up and let you function right off the table. It is the Word of God that our Lord uses, our Father uses, to prune us when we are fruitful, to make us more fruitful. But He uses more than that. He uses trial and affliction to get our attention so as to prune us better, right? We could go to passages like Hebrews 12 in which the writer of Hebrews says that God is like our fathers who disciplined us for a time and we did not enjoy it, but the end result we appreciated. And our Father in heaven is just like them. He disciplines us for our good. We could turn to Romans 5 or 1 Peter 1 or James 1 and talk about how affliction and trials test our faith, prove our faith. They exercise the muscle of our faith. Afflictions are the gym that our loving Father sends us into to stretch the muscle and make us work out spiritually. So we produce the life of Christ out of us as God works them in us. But trials, apart from the Word of God, are not sanctifying, are they? You've tried that before, I think. I have. 
where you go through the trial and you're beat and battered and bruised on every side and you're like, what is going on? Just get me out of here. And you just want out. You want freedom from the pain and the problem and just to get rid of it all because fear and anxiety are consuming you and relationships are being hindered and hurt and you're just wondering, why is God doing this? Where is he? Doesn't he care? Does he love me? All those questions we ask. What do you need in that moment? You need the pruning work of the Word of God. Afflictions drive you to the clear testimony of God about Himself, about you, and about what He's doing in you, for you, and through you. Trials force us to face up to what is really true. Because frankly, it's easy to sit in these pews and agree with a preacher about all the spiritual truths we affirm every Sunday. It's a whole other thing to sit in your living room and receive the worst news in the world and have to say, is that actually true? Is God actually all that I need? Affliction drives us to the Word, which the Spirit of God uses to purify us. These strokes of pruning are painful but necessary. They are hard, but they are good. Amy Carmichael, the brave missionary to India, reflected on this passage in John 15, and she wrote this, What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. And then she prayed, Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. Beloved, do you trust the vine dresser? Do you trust him? This is the core struggle at the center of every trial. Because you know enough about your Bible to know that he is sovereign over that trial. That he's ordained and appointed that trial for you, for that moment. And you know in your head, at least, that he's working a million things out through it all. But for you, according to John 15, he is at work to prune you so that you might produce more fruit. We ought in this moment to stop and give praise to the God of heaven that these pruning shears are in his hands and in no one else's. We should rejoice that he does not give them over to our enemies who would gladly cut away with little care or love or wisdom, but who see plenty of things in our lives that need to get gone. And they'd love the opportunity to cut and chop and do the job. We should rejoice that God does not hand these shearing scissors over to our dearest friends or even to our pastors or even to our spouse 
who though in love would not know what God knows. Would not be wise like God is wise. And they are not qualified for the job. Beloved, give praise to him who is decisive over it all, knowing in each one of our lives that no cut is wasted. No cut is in the wrong place or at the wrong time. Praise be to God. That points us then to one command, and that is to abide in Christ. Those assurances that Christ is the vine and the Father is the vine dresser point us to this reality. We must abide in Christ. That's a clear command flowing out of those assurances. It's an obvious emphasis of the text that if you're a true disciple, you will have spiritual fruit in your life. You will bear fruit. God's life at work and you can't help but come out of you. But notice that the assurance of the text and the command of the text is not produce fruit. Correct? So to be a true disciple, you will bear fruit. But Jesus, in all his wisdom, does not say to you, now examine your life to see if there's enough of it. Nor does he say, now go bear fruit. No, rather, the assurance is, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Therefore, abide in The assurance of the text is rooted in Christ. You see, your job as a branch is to be connected to the vine. The job of the vine is to produce fruit through you. The branch is the channel, not the source. So Jesus says to them, abide in me and I in you. It's a reciprocal relationship, just like it is with vine and branches. The, The branch connects to the vine, so also the vine connects to the branch. Jesus says, so it is with us. You simply cannot bear fruit unless you abide in him and he in us. Then the obvious question next, I'm full of them this morning, I know, but the obvious next question is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Thanks for that command, Lord, but what does that mean? What does it look like tomorrow morning when you wake up and feel like pulling the covers back over your head and skipping your day? What does it mean then to abide in Christ? Well, it simply means to remain in Christ by faith. To remain in Christ by faith. So verse 7, Jesus equates it with his words abiding in us. Verse 10, he equates this abiding with keeping his commandment and thereby abiding in his love. So to abide in Christ means to have his word living in us and directing us in obedience to him because he loves us. It's resting in him and trusting him and looking to him, relying upon him, which is going to look like praying a lot. It's going to look like running to his word a lot. Not out of duty, but out of delight, because you know in that is all you need for life and godliness. It's very similar, by the way, this abiding in Christ is similar to what happened at the end of chapter 6. You remember that? The 5,000 are fed, probably 15,000 to 20,000 people total. Jesus, they come back the next day looking for more food. Jesus confronts them and says, you're just here for the food. And he goes on to tell them that, that if you really were interested in what's real here, you would want the true bread and the true drink. And if you, if you ate my flesh and drank my blood, you would abide in me. 
They don't like what he said. They're confused and also turned off by it. They turn and leave. Jesus looks at his 12 around him. He says, are you going to leave too? And you remember in that moment what Peter says? Where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of life. We know and have been convinced and believe that you are the one sent from God. Everyone else was leaving. They remained. They abided. Why did they abide? Because they had heard the words of Christ. John 8.31, Jesus says that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So to abide in Christ is indissolubly linked. In other words, it cannot be separated from abiding, his words abiding in you. Galatians 2.20, Paul speaks of being crucified with Christ, and he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a a one-verse description of what it means to abide in Christ, to be in Christ. It's right there. Your identity, everything, your, your life, your focus, your purpose, it's all there in Paul's statement in Galatians 2.20. Colossians 2, 6-7, Paul says, Walk in Christ in the way that you received Christ, rooted and built up in Christ. 1 John 2, verse 6, we're told that abiding in Christ looks like walking as Christ walked. So you want to abide in Jesus, you need to know Jesus and further know Jesus, and live like Jesus lived, remaining in his words, obeying his commands. So crucial for these 11 as their whole world in a few hours is going to come crashing down on their heads. As their Lord and Savior is crucified on a Roman cross, and they all flee and scatter, and they are unsure of what is true anymore, he is saying to them ahead of time, listen, return to my word. Remain in me. Abide in me. Believe me. Trust me. Don't abandon the truth. One last cross-reference, then we're done. I want you to turn to Luke 8. Luke 8, flip over there with me. Luke 8, verse 15. The parable of the different soils upon which the seed of the gospel has been sown by the sower. Jesus is explaining in Luke 8 how the, the seed of the gospel does different things on those different soils. The the results are different, and he explains what that means. Verse 15, he's describing the good soil which produced a hundredfold crop. Verse 15, he says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is a one-word description of what it means to be a disciple. A one-verse description, I think. I think I said one word. One-verse description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is what a true disciple looks like. The word comes, the word of the gospel comes, it abides in them, and they hold fast to it. In an honest and good heart. A heart that's been changed by the grace of God. And then they bear fruit with patience. So this good seed of the gospel implanted in them will produce fruit out of them, and it will do so over time with patience. 
The word in the Greek is a compound word of two words, the two words under and to remain. The same word Jesus used in John 15, to abide. So fruit comes out of us as we remain under. Well, remain under what? Remain under the word that we're holding fast to. And God in his eternal wisdom will bring upon you as the wise vine dresser the trials and the afflictions and the prunings that you need and your job is to remain under the word and thereby in his kindness produce fruit. And that's a long task, not a short one. Ask any farmer in the room. They don't plant a seed today and reap the harvest tomorrow. No, they're planting seeds now that they'll reap in May and June. And they'll do a lot to make sure that the ground is prepped, readied, and good to produce good seed. But they play the long game. They bear under the task. This is God's work with you. He's patient with you. And he's saying to you, abide in him and be patient with him. I close quickly with three applications. Three applications of this text. So these two assurances. Jesus is the true vine. His father is the vine dresser, therefore abide in Christ. Here's your three applications. They're not rocket science, but I need to point them out to you. Expect pruning. Expect pruning. We're too often surprised by it, beloved. God's been really clear. Really clear. It's going to come. And there will be seasons of it that are harder than others more intense than others. There will be cuts that he'll make in your life that will mar and mark you for the rest of your life. But from that cut, he will produce myriads upon myriads of fruit, spiritual fruit out of you if you remain in Christ. Expect pruning, and as you do, trust the vine dresser. Brother or sister, you have no choice in the matter of whether or not it's going to come, how it's going to come, what it's going to look like, how it's going to hurt. But you do have a choice to trust him or to not. Do you agree that you need sanctified and purified? Do you agree that you're not yet <clears throat> what you ought be in Christ? Do you agree, dear Christian, that you need to look more like Jesus than you do right now? God's appointed method is through his pruning work. And he can and must be trusted. And then lastly, abide in Christ. And by, namely, I mean by that, run to his word. Expect the pruning. When the pruning comes, trust the vine dresser and abide. Remain in Christ. Rest in the vine to produce and to give you all that you need for life and godliness. May God help us follow Christ in this way. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayer to sanctify us with this truth. Now would you take it and embed it deep in our hearts. 
We ask, Lord, that you would keep us from being those who have heard the word, walk away and forget it. But make us be those who, having heard the word, never forget it and always live in accord with it. This can only be done by your Spirit's power upon us, so we pray that you would do this for your glory and for your honor. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.